I'd like to say something to you before we start. I don't think it's appropriate. Did I just lose it? Okay, are we here again? Okay. I don't think it's appropriate that people sunbathe out front of our church. Because I think it sends a wrong message. Now, I make that statement. What did you just assume? There's people sunbathing in front of our church. Some of you want to go look right now and see if they're out there. But it didn't happen. What I'm trying to say to you is, is that when I read the scriptures, I recognize that every scripture is there for a purpose. Every scripture is there for a purpose. And when a statement is made, we will have to say there is a reason for that statement being made. Yet when I get to people and they're finishing up the book of Romans... They look at the list of the people that are mentioned there and they simply just skip over it. And they don't say, well, there was just a bunch of people that Paul said hi to. That's what they they basically say. And when I see that, I say, you know what? I believe that every verse has a purpose. I believe that some of them I don't know the purpose yet, but I do believe that every verse has has a purpose. So let me read this one to you. And I'm going to chase a little rabbit here at the beginning. And I'm going to tell you that up front. But I just really feel like I needed to say this and clear the air on a few things. It says in Romans 16, 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. You notice here that Paul has got some people that are in the Roman church. He's never been to Rome, never seen the church, never seen the people, doesn't know the people except for these people that he's mentioning here. And some of these he doesn't know, quite frankly. But he knows some of these people. He knows some of these people very well. Like I said, never been there. And he names them off because here's the way it works in, the, in that culture and in the Greek. You name the most important first and you go down to the least important. And the fact is, is that I'm, I'm be very honest with you. I'm not going to mention a whole lot of these people very much next week when we get to the, the next uh, message that we've got in this. But what I'm trying to say here, these were the very important people to Paul. In this, you have Prisca, who is a lady, which is a woman, who is mentioned first. Now, he's already mentioned Phoebe. Phoebe would be the one who was a woman who was taking the letter to the Romans. And now he's mentioning Prisca next, a woman and a woman that we see right here. And when you find in the scriptures, where you find Prisca and Aquila, and sometimes she's called Priscilla, Priscilla is just a nickname kind of thing. You know, like we say Donnie or somebody named Don or Donald. That's the same kind of thing. And so we find that in the times that they're mentioned in the scripture, and they're mentioned always together, you'll find that Prisca is mentioned first before Aquila most of the time. The woman is named first. It means that she would have been somewhat of a more of a stronger worker or maybe she understood spiritual things uh, better than her husband. He's not trying to put him down. I'm not trying to do that at all. And it's not that he's not important. 
But what I'm trying to say here is, is that that is not how the church has treated women in the past. Just being very honest with you. Now, folks, I believe the Bible. If anybody tells you that I don't believe the Bible, then they are absolutely wrong. But I believe that the Bible needs to speak for the Bible and not some denomination or somebody else. I believe that what we need to be able to say in good faith is, what does the scripture actually say? I became a Baptist because the Baptists loved the Bible. I could have chosen something else, and I chose to be a Baptist because they love the Word of God, and I love the Word of God. So when I take it, I often I'll take each of these verses, and I will take and I will translate those verses from the Greek, and I will try to get the closest meaning that I can ever get so that I'm telling you not something that is somebody's leftover sermons from somewhere else, but something that God has really spoken to me. But if we take some scriptures and let them define other scriptures out of context, that what we're going to find is that we're not going to have a good interpretation. In fact, biblical interpretation has often affected what has already been determined. And I believe that that is a flaw sometimes in our own system of doing so. And the reason I'm going to give you the scripture that... that, uh, defines so often how people translate the scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. If you take that as an essential understanding of the difference between men and women, and you take that out of the context of that scripture that it's in, if you take that out of the culture that was in, then you will start changing the scripture in many, many ways. When you get down to when we're going to get to Andronicus and Junia, Junia was a woman, okay? But they didn't like the fact that they were well-known apostles. So when they took it, they changed Junia to Junius. And they got a Junius because that made it a man. Now that made it a little weird too because then you had Adronicus and, and uh, Junius, which it looks like a couple. I'm just telling you the way it looks. So you got a problem there. So they changed the, the words. When they found, they looked at the old manuscripts. And when they found out the old manuscripts had Junia in there and they couldn't deny it anymore, they changed it from them being well-known uh, apostles to they were well-known among the apostles. And many of your translations in the scripture are going to say that. They're going to say it's well known among the the apostles. And you're going to find that in many places in the scripture, because they take this scripture right here, and I think they take it out of context, but they take this scripture and what they do is they start changing everything around that so they can make it fit into their system. And there's no integrity in that. There's no integrity that every time that you see the word diaconus, we see the word, and it's with a woman, that we call it a servant. And when every time we see it with a man, we call it a deacon. It's the same exact word. There's no integrity in that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at an age now I don't have to answer to anybody in, in all of this kind of stuff. I've just given you what the Word of God says here. But here's what I know. When I look at this list, and of these 26 people that Paul will mention to greet, nine of them are women. That means that women were important within the church. So I look at this and I say, Paul was pragmatic. 
he was addressing this issue in first timothy because he was solving a problem first he did not make it a command he said i would not he made it a statement and not a command he made it a command we'd have a different story there but he did not make it a command he made it a plain statement he is dealing with some heresy that has been taught in the church and by the way folks you can't make a statement say i would not allow a woman to teach if they weren't allowing women to teach in the first place in other words there's nobody sunbathing out here i can't make a statement about people sunbathing out there when there's nobody sunbathing out there but it's got to have happened before I can make the statement. There has to have been women that were teaching at that time. They were allowing women to teach. So it looks to me like there was a heresy that some woman, because if you read that First Timothy passage, you find that it's, it's plural, 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 and suddenly it becomes a woman. It's singular. And it looks to me, very seriously, as if there is a woman that he's addressing. When we find that the scripture and how the scripture is written, we find that it is written for a purpose. And why would you bring that up if it wasn't happening at all? Why would you even address the issue if it wasn't happening at all? And so what you've got to come to a conclusion on this is there were women that were teaching and they were doing a good job of it. But there was a woman that was teaching a heresy. Now, I don't know what happened. I'm going to tell you up front. I don't know. And part of the reason is, is because the early church made sure that they got rid of most of the heretical texts that were out there. There are all kinds of texts. I mean, you've heard them, you'll hear them uh, advertised as the lost books of the Bible. They were never lost. <laughs> they, were, they were always around. Do you understand? What they tried, the church tried to do is to get rid of them. They were saying, these are not lost. We had them. We determined they're not scripture and we want to get rid of them. But because they were growing so fast, they didn't have a New Testament yet. They didn't have the New Testament written. There were heresies that could easily come up. If someone gave you an explanation about how the world began and they were a Gentile and did not know the, the story of Genesis, or even they said before Genesis, they started with something even before Genesis began, then what you would have to say is, is that I don't know and I might accept that. And that's what happened with a lot of people. A lot of people accepted that. The church did, like I said, a pretty good job of getting rid of most of the heretical text. I wish they hadn't. And the only reason I wish they hadn't is not because I want people to believe in the heresy, but because we would know the reason why that was there and said in that way. Do you realize that if you look at that 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 verse, three verses later, it says, and women will be saved by childbearing? Come on, folks. Why don't we jump on that one? Why don't we say that all the women, you've got to have children in order to be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? They didn't jump on that one. They didn't say that. And that's just three verses after that verse. So there is an instance that this woman, who is, they used, the, and used a different word for authority. They used the word authenteo, which means to, when you take authority, it's like taking authority from somebody rather than, you know, than having authority. And it says this woman shall usurp authority and said, so this is the situation. And I don't believe anybody should usurp authority from somebody else. I, I don't believe that for whether male or female. This woman is doing this. And somehow... They've connected that with the childbearing, which one suggestion I read was, is that 
This woman was controlling her husband by not having spousal relationships with him. Let's put it that way. And so that what she was doing, she was controlling her husband that way and usurping the authority that was there and was teaching this heresy in the church. I don't know if that's what happened. But what I'm trying to say here is, is that we cannot take a scripture out of the context and then make it a central scripture and then make all of the rest of our scriptures have to agree with that scripture. We need to take the Bible and take it in its entirety and understand it in its entirety. And we have too many women being used very faithfully, being used very effectively in the church. And so... My belief on this is, is that that was not intended to be a doctrine. We need doctrine, understand. But it wasn't intended for that to be a doctrine. And that has become a doctrine. And it has made people even say, well, if they do that, let women do that, then they don't believe the Bible. No, he's not saying that at all. Many, many churches have women doing things, using their spiritual gifts just as effectively as men. And we don't need to make a rule about something like that. I even looked at it in this this way. If it really should have been, you know, men in charge and women were supposed to just do what they say, you know what I would have written? Husbands, make your wives be silent. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say that at all. It says a woman should not. And it isn't, it isn't even given as a command. So I realize that I have chased this rabbit. But I will say this. When the practice doesn't match the interpretation of the statement, the interpretation of the statement needs to be examined. In other words, their practice, and you look through the Bible, your practice, you will see many women used in very effective ways. And when that happens, when that happens, folks, then we need to realize that... But, you know, it's not like they said, well, you know what? We didn't know that we were supposed to do that. That's not what happened. They were being led by the Holy Spirit. They were being, the scriptures, uh, it was spirit inspired for them. I understand all of that. And there was a reason that Paul wrote to Timothy about this woman. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't match up with what I have even preached myself. I've even preached this myself. And when I, I was examining this, I had to back off and say, you know what? I can't preach that anymore. There are too many cases that I have seen the use uh, of women in a church being incredibly effective. And if that is true, folks, then why is it that those people that want to say, well, women can't do they let them teach Sunday school classes. They let them teach. Uh, I mean, and there's men in those classes. In other words, they're inconsistent with what they're saying in the first place. My belief is, is that that's not what it intended to be in the, in the second place. So Paul greets these people. And he, he says in this scripture here, he says it, he said, I think it says it 18 times. He uses the word greet. And he's greeting those people. He's not going to see them right away. And he's saying, go and tell, greet so-and-so for me. Greet these people that, you know, because I'm not going to see them for a while. But with my letter, I'm going to tell you to greet them. It's a little bit more than go give so-and-so a hug for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, the word for greet is not a word of a casual greeting. It's a word that would carry weight. It's not perfunctory greeting. It, it's a, it would mean completely greet. It's to go over the line in the sense of greeting people. When I was on staff at First Baptist Lubbock, our pastor left and went to uh, be the state mission director of Texas. 
And so I volunteered to take the guest preachers from the airport and bring them to the church. And, and, and I did this for the purpose of getting to know some of these preachers. Now, First Baptist Lubbock was a big, big, big church, okay? And the thing was is that we could have pretty high-powered preachers. And so I got the opportunity to meet Dr. Jack McGorman. I mean, actually go and, 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 and talk with him, you know, and, 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 you know, really even kind of get to know him, Dr. Bill Toler and, and, and Dr. Robert Naylor. Dr. Robert Naylor was the uh, former president of Southwestern Seminary before all the Baptists went crazy, if you understand what I'm saying. He, he, he retired in 79. And so <clears throat> one time I went to get Dr. Naylor. I mean, he brought him to, to, the, to the, his hotel and all that kind of stuff. Got to know him a little bit. I always took my daughters with me, or at least one of my daughters. So he, he got to know my daughters as well. And he came and preached a few times. Well, one Sunday night... The associate pastor was going in with the senior adult choir because he had been a minister of music and he became an associate pastor. He was not the minister of music at our church. But he was going into the Sunday night and he's going in to, uh, for the service. We're on TV on Sunday nights. You have to understand that. We were on TV. And so I looked at him and I said, I thought you were going to go get Dr. Naylor. And he said, no, I thought you were going to go get Dr. Naylor. Now, that television program is going to come on regardless of whether we have a preacher there or not. And so I ran and jumped in my car, and I ran down to the hotel as fast as I could. And Dr. Naylor was pacing out in front of the hotel at this point. And I picked him up, and I, I drove as fast as I could till I could, you know, I get to the church and got him there and got him there in time to preach. And even though, uh, even though, you, you know, he has to be frazzled over something like that, I mean, he still preached an amazing message. And, you know, and, and so that night I took him back home, and I mean, back to his uh, hotel and all that kind of stuff. And afterwards, I felt so badly about it. I wrote him a letter and I said, I apologize for you not, you know, uh, being on top of things. And, and you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that I put you under pressure and, and gave anxiety where there shouldn't have been anxiety and all of this kind of stuff. And he wrote me a handwritten letter back. This very, to me, giant of a man. He wasn't that big, but he was a giant of a man to me. And he wrote and he said, don't worry about this at all. It was no problem to me. He said... He said, it was just a pleasure to get to know you and your precious daughters. And then he wrote, you know, I just went, he wrote me a letter. He went over the line. You know what most people do? It's okay. Don't think about it. It's okay. And that's all they would have ever said to me. Next time I see them, that's what would have happened. And I thought about that. And I thought, when Paul was sending this greeting... He was going over the line. He was showing a, a, a relationship with these people. Not a casual greeting. Don't greet these people just like I'm, I'm just flipping the word out there and saying that's, that's all you really need to do. You need to really greet these people. And his deep relationship is, is reflected in his relationship to this first two. Priscilla or Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila were leather workers or tent makers. Guess who else was a tent maker? Paul was. They did the same thing. And so when they were in places that they would have been in, they worked alongside each other. They worked sharing the gospel alongside of each other. Now, we must assume that they lived in Rome before they live in Rome now. And it could have been that in 49 AD, 
Emperor Claudius, who expelled all the Jews out of uh, Rome at that time, he would have expelled Aquila because Aquila was a Jew, and we assume that Prisca was, but I'm not absolutely sure of this. And so they got they got expelled from there. And then in 54 A.D., when he after he dies, they sometimes they go back to Rome. Now they are probably wealthy because in each of the places that we see them, they have a house church. So that means that they have a house big enough for a church and Paul will even stay with them and work with them. <clears throat> they're very knowledgeable of the scriptures and knowledgeable of the theology of the day because they will take that great preacher that's mentioned in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, where they'll take Apollos aside and they will correct his preaching on baptism. So they are, you know, they're able to even uh, address some of the preachers that, uh, that were contemporary to that day and correct who they are. Paul calls Prisca and Aquila are called co-workers. He calls them this. It's a statement that's saying that they are equal with me as I am in what they do. It may be a statement saying there should be donations taken up to help support them in this process. But it elevates them to Paul's level. And so they're supported. They think they should be supported that way. You know, the thing about it is, folks, is that... The church should be filled with co-workers. Do you understand what I'm saying? It ought to be filled with co-workers. And co-workers have the same goal. And co-workers have the same work. They work at the same thing that they're working toward. But the church is not like that, is it? It's not filled with co-workers. You know, in, in 1935, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, President of the United States at the time, he enacted a program called the Works Progress Administration. The WPA. And the Works Progress Administration was in order to give people jobs just during the Depression. Uh, and there was $1.3 billion allotted to their budget. Can you imagine that? $1.3 billion in 1935. That's a, that's a load of money. However, the average worker made $41.57 a month. This is the deal. That's what they made. This is back in, in 1935. But the people who were a part of the WPA, as they called it, the Works Progress Administration, they called it the, they called it, we piddle along, is what they did. And the reason was, they hired so many people for the job that most of the people didn't really have anything to do. So if you drove by and they were doing a road, you'd see, you'd see that there's two guys shoveling with shovels and, and ten guys leaning on their shovels. Because they didn't have anything to do. And that seems to be the picture of the church we have today. We have a picture of the church. There's two people working like crazy. And ten people not doing anything. And it's not, shouldn't be that way. There should be co-workers in the church, just like Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila had risked their necks for Paul. The idiom there, we're risking the necks, mean, it literally meant to put your neck under the axe. The word for uh, neck is trachylos. Where we get the word trachea from, it kind of gives you an idea where they cut your head off. You understand? So the trachealos is this. So we don't know when that was, but it could have been in Ephesus. In Ephesus, Paul was preaching that Demetrius and the other silversmiths were making these little gods to Artemis. Artemis was the god that they worship there in, in Ephesus and he was saying they weren't these aren't really gods at all and, and it messed with the economy of the day and so they messed with the income so there was a riot that was broken out and I don't know exactly what happened there but I can say that somehow Prisca and Aquila risked their necks they got out there and they kept Paul from being 
having his neck chopped off as well, or his head chopped off. And if we understand that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, you have to say that Prisca and Aquila loved Paul dearly. So saving Paul's life meant that he was able to preach to the Gentiles. It says the Gentiles' churches were so thankful that Paul was able to come and give them that message of salvation. And anyone who truly recognizes their salvation is appreciative of receiving that salvation because salvation is more than simply going to heaven. Salvation is a relationship that is developed between us and our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is something that makes our lives alive. Salvation gives us purpose. Salvation takes away the guilt of sin. Salvation gives us the fear of death, takes it away. Salvation is a a walk with the Lord. And so there is that that exciting thing of salvation that the Gentiles were so thankful that Prisca and Aquila had saved Paul's life. Each time we baptize here, and we will be doing that in two weeks again, each time we baptize here, we have the people write out their testimony of why they're being baptized. And the theme that prevails in each of these is their relationship with the Lord. Not the prayer that they said, but the relationship that they have with the Lord. And those who walk with the Lord, they know him more than by by name and reputation. They know him by experience. And that's why it's such a joy to see people baptized. Paul sends greetings to the church in Prisca and Aquila's house. He knows this about them. He knows that they're going to have a church in their house. And house churches were the way that church was done back then. A building is nothing more than an asset, and a house is an asset. And, and if you can, you should have not only fellowships, but small groups that come to your house. Because there's something that happens when we let our hair down, and we find out who we really are because of what really happens in our houses. This past summer, I had a group of people over to, to do a study called The Insanity of God. And they were, they were there at my house. And the first time they, were, they came in, uh, they didn't know that, one, I have Alexa. I don't know how many of you have got Alexa, but Alexa turns on my lights and stuff. And so I said, Alexa, turn on the den lights. And she didn't do it. And I said, Alexa, turn on the den lights. And they looked at me. And I said, what? I told Alexa to turn on the den lights. They said, we didn't think you said den. <laughs> you let your hair down a little bit, right? That's the way it is. Paul sends greetings to Eponidas. He is the first convert. It literally, he is the first fruit of someone coming to Christ in Asia. He was someone that Paul knew. He's so attached with Prisca and Aquila that you must assume that he's in that house church that they have there. He is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. That's the only time you see him. So what? Let me give you the so what's quickly. One, we need to be a people who read the Bible anew with conviction. We need to discern what should be doctrine and what should be, and and look at the practice of the New Testament as we are determining our own doctrine. But then we need to follow the doctrine to make it the practice of our church. We really do. I believe in doctrine. Don't misunderstand. I'm not throwing out the doctrine. 
Second, we need to fill our churches with co-workers. There is a job for everyone who calls himself a disciple. And if all we have for all of the discipleship groups that we have had going on in this church, if all we've had is people who are be able to say, I went through that course and they've done nothing else, we have failed at discipleship. Because every person either needs to be discipling through the process of leading a group or they need to be discipling by someone watching them as they're doing some other kind of work in the church. Because that's how you make disciples, and he needs to continue to make disciples. Third, we need to be willing to risk our necks for the gospel. It will not be today. I can imagine what it will be someday, though. There will be some day when you will stand for the gospel. And as you stand for the gospel, you could lose your job, you could lose your promotion, you could lose your raises, you could lose your relationships because of your convictions. But if you don't start standing now while you can, you won't be able to stand later when they're, they're opposing you. Fourth, we need to use our living spaces as much as possible for the gospel. Maybe you need a small group in your home. Maybe you say, I'm not the teacher, but I can host a small group in my home. And maybe you just need to be creative about that. And fifth, we need to truly rejoice over every person who gives his or her life to the Lord. Say, I want others to have what I have. And when I, I'll I'll tell you, this is a confession, folks. I love to preach. I would preach for free. But I'll pay you to baptize. I like baptizing that much. And I will tell you the truth. I don't want to put people up there just to get them wet. I love to see lives changed. I love to see somebody whose heart is different than it was before. And so what I would say to you is that Be excited when somebody is baptized because it is exciting. The New Testament is finished, folks. It's finished. It's complete. And you will never get your name in the Bible. You know, it's not going to happen. However, we are to live our lives so that we are worthy enough to be in the Bible.